Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast uses text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show has identifying terms that may now be out of date. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from the beginning to Stonewall. Hello? You better get down here, Reverend. Cliff's Hotel. My God, what happened? 
I got a call from these men a few minutes ago. Are you okay? The police beat them senseless. Can you take them to the church for some ice and bandages? I'll call the Presbyterian Hospital. Maybe the hotel staff The hotel staff kicked them out. What? Cops came and kicked their genitals in. And the hospital won't take them. They said they're dirty, filthy queers. Thank you for calling me. This way. The church is right around the corner. July 8th, 1964, at the Hideaway, in Washington, D.C. Jack Nichols drinks with friends. It's a gay bar, daringly operating just across the street from FBI headquarters. In the crowd, Jack spots... An apparition. Tight blue shirt, sitting, looking, making eye contact. Jack walks through the crowd toward the young man. Would you like to join us? I'm sitting over here with a straight couple. They're pretty nice. I'm Jack. Lige. Huh? Elijah. Bobby? You heard Bobby? You sure can smile. One learns to smile in the army. It's all such a big joke. Hi. This is Bobby. Lige. (laughs) So, you're military? Keep it secret. I'm not supposed to be in this bar. We can keep secrets. Ever heard of Mattachine? No, I... Clearly she's not that great at keeping secrets. He told us one, and it's hardly a secret. We're activists with Mattachine. What does that mean? We stand for equality for gay people. Wow, that's wonderful. Somebody ought to stand up for our rights. If you hang around these two, they'll turn you into a radical homo. Maybe they'll succeed. Credit to Jack Nichols for writing that scene in his autobiography. Lige Clark works in the offices of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He has 11 security clearances. He works on sensitive documents from the Pentagon, State Department, the FBI, and the White House. By the end of the night, he's giving Jack a ride home. It's Lija's first date with a man. They kiss goodbye and make plans to meet up again on Friday around 10 p.m. for McDonald's and a movie. At the end of their second date, Jack takes Lige to meet Frank Kameny. Come on down. I'm mimeographing some machine things. Do you need a hand? What else are you two here for? Fold those papers, Jack. I've got purple all over my hands. What do you do with all these pamphlets? We try to get them into the hands of as many homosexuals as we can, because eventually they're going to need our help. I could put some in the Pentagon. If you need help. I don't even know how to begin to join your machine. I think you just did. Jack takes Lige home that night. You're going to need a pseudonym. I already thought of one. Really? Tell me. Robert C. Hayden. Is Robert because I called you Bobby? Bobby? (laughs) I am no longer alone. I have suddenly found friends. Ger Van Brom writes from Jakarta, Indonesia. She writes, I just learned myself that I am not the only one in the world with my deviation. There are others just like me. Gervan Brahm has been married, but after three months, as she writes to the editors of the latter, I revolted against my captivity and broke free. Her family then disowned her. She goes on, writing to the latter, 
I would thank all your writers who give us something valuable from their own richness of feeling and understanding, if you could but know what any enlightenment means to us. Gurr found an issue of the latter at her friend's house. Her letter to the editor, Barbara Giddings, is titled Isolation in Indonesia and is printed in the June 1964 issue. She writes about the solitude of an Indonesian lesbian and the lack of books. So Barbara and Kay start a book donation campaign through the latter. Books for Gare. Gare writes again, thrilled to be receiving so many wonderful books about lesbianism from American women. She returns Barbara's letter, writing, No, I've nothing to fear of our customs here in Indonesia, for I know that our people are so ignorant they wouldn't even know what all those books would be about, if they would think anything at all. She includes a photograph of herself, and with her permission, Barbara and Kay put Gare Van Brom on the cover of their November 1964 issue, the first person showing her face on the cover of the latter. The overriding problem is invisibility. How do you organize people that you can't see? Reader with initials JN from Australia writes in. We have just seen several copies of the latter and we were thunderstruck. The covers are beautiful. The content has improved 100%. We just look at each other and ask, can this be the latter? A love, a small masterpiece. Every month you move forward by leaps and bounds. The covers drift away from drawings and silhouette photos. Kay Lehusen puts her photojournalism skills to work, and they start printing pictures of real lesbian women for the covers. Kay Lehusen is credited as Kay Tobin, chosen from the phone book. Lehusen is too hard to pronounce. With the massive anonymous donations from the so-called Pennsylvania, the magazine is now printed on 24 pages of slick stock. Each issue is printed into the high triple digits now. Many women all over the world, like Gare's friend, cling to their issues for years and share them discreetly with other women. Gare writes again, I just finished reading your letter for the nth time and I am still marveling at your ingenuity. It's a way of thinking beyond our mentality. Homophile publications are moving forward quickly. The Janus Society in Philadelphia begins their own magazine, Drum. They write about sex and politics hand-in-hand, along with boldly sexual images, like a gay playboy. Drum is the first American publication to include full frontal male nudity. They debut the first gay comic strip, The Man from Auntie. And after Life magazine's article, Homosexuality in America, which you heard last week, Drum makes their own parody, Heterosexuality in America. They explain to their readers that heteros exist all over the country. Frank Kameny even joins the staff with his name on the masthead and writes an article about his hearing at Congress with Dowdy, which we heard last season. The magazine's circulation quickly hits 10,000, surpassing all other homophile publications. Meanwhile, Pangraphic Press in San Francisco is printing a new edition of Bob Dameron's Bar Guide, now including 150 pages of gay bars across the nation. It's selling so fast, Pangraphic can barely keep up. The new organization, SIRS, publication Vector, also in San Francisco, becomes advertised as a voice for the homophile community, while its publishers at SIR are also busy working with Reverend Ted Mickledenna. Enlisting Sins 
we need to include the church's penchant for separating the good from the bad in a way that neither the experience of history nor the data of the behavioral sciences support. The minister quickly incorporates the new Council on Religion and the Homosexual, a collective effort between the homophile activists and San Francisco's ministers to help improve the lives of local homosexuals. The Mattachine, the Daughters of Belitis, Sir, the Coits, Guy Strait and Associates, and the Tavern Guild all pitch in with ministers from the Lutheran, Presbyterian, Unitarian, Universalist, Methodist, and Episcopalian churches. They decide to put on a New Year's fundraiser in order for the United Council to launch their new programs for queers. It's all new education programs and public activities so the city's ministers can provide services for gay youth. Their first big fundraiser will be a Mardi Gras-themed ball at the relatively run-down California Hall in the Tenderloin. This spectacularly public endorsement of homosexuals by ministers is an undeniably large step forward for homosexuals. At least that's what Belitis co-founders Dell and Phyllis think. They see change on the horizon and new work ahead. Dell and Phil decide it's time to hand over the reins of the Daughters of Belitis. If the organization has any validity at all, it can't be based on two people. It has to be able to stand and grow on its own. And it's never going to do it if we don't move out. Hell, we've been working all these years to get the churches to communicate with us. They're now about to. Do you think we're going to turn our backs on them? That's ridiculous. We finally made a breakthrough and we've got to go with it. Besides, the Daughters of Belitis are in good hands. And the latter is being made on the East Coast by Barbara Giddings and Kay Tobin, where they're already trying to focus on more radical issues. Readers of the latter often write in to disapprove of Barbara's point of view, such as her open criticism of medical professionals. The New York Academy of Medicine is a medical group which myopically sees homosexuality only as a disease. The shoddy work behind this report is a discredit to a professional group in the scientific field. Giddings plans to skip the upcoming homophile convention in D.C. to stay home and work on the magazine, but she hears that the leader of Washington's Mattachine, Frank Kameny, is planning to openly criticize the DOB in a debate for their lack of action against oppressive laws. Barbara writes, Wonderful. This movement needs to do some soul-searching. She decides to attend the event. Before the convention, Frank Kameny addresses the Mattachine of New York. The entire homophile movement is going to stand or fall upon the question of whether homosexuality is a sickness and upon our taking a firm stand on it until and unless valid positive evidence shows otherwise, homosexuality per se is neither a sickness, a defect, a disturbance, a neurosis, a psychosis, nor a malfunction of any sort. Echo, another alliance of East Coast homophile organizations, they're getting restless. As doctors remind the public that homosexuals are sick, the military sends them to Vietnam to fight in the war and then dishonorably discharges them due to their supposed sickness. At Kameny's suggestion, Randy Wicker brings the League for Sexual Freedom to the U.S. Army's Whitehall Street Induction Center in Manhattan. Frank wrote up a letter for the Army Secretary and a flyer for Randy. Randy adds the headline, The Army versus Sex. 
Randy called on the MSNY to join them in the picket, but most of them aren't ready for that. Picketing for homosexuality is essentially the same as being arrested in the park and having your name printed in the paper. Because if that happens, you're done for. You're outed to the world, you're banned from federal work. That's partly why no homophile group has ever picketed. But on Saturday, September 19th, 1964, the rain drizzles down on three Mattachinos who join Randy outside of the Army Induction Center. 23-year-old Craig Rodwell, who was recently dating Harvey Milk, and two young lesbians from the MSNY and DOB, Renee Cafiero and Nancy Garden, they all join Randy. Wicker's lover, Peter Ogren, and of course, a few members of the League for Sexual Freedom join. Including a baby brought by one of the members, the picket's total attendance is nine people. They pass out the flyers explaining the Army's policy of dishonorably discharging homosexuals. We don't dodge the draft. The draft dodges us. Homosexuals died for U.S. too, Renee Cafiero's sign says. Another one says, love and let love. There is no mainstream media coverage of this, or really any attention at all from anyone even inside the building, but it is the first picket by homosexuals for a homosexual issue. No one got hurt or even outed. No one got reported on at all, so... Overall, the activists feel defeated by the lack of press and attendance. But Randy remains determined to build on a little momentum. John Waters and the Dreamlanders run around Baltimore shooting their first film, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. Waters is 18. His young troupe is developing their now-legendary ability to use crude characters to poke fun at the establishment and its social outcasts. The young transgressive actors proudly take on the filthiest roles on film, And though Hag is just a 17-minute film, and Dreamland isn't successful in the mainstream yet, a generation of radically uncensored youth is coming of age along with them. Some members of the Echo Alliance feel the same urge artists and homophile publishers feel, the push to make their points of view known. After three hotels cancel on Echo's conference, they finally find one that'll take them, and they gather in D.C. for their second big meeting and dedicate their organizations to immediate action. There, at the Sheridan Park Hotel, activists arrive for the convention of the East Coast Hemophile Organizations, as the misprinted sign announces. On the final day of the convention, six clergymen join a panel for a discussion. In addition to some expected guests who had threatened to show up. It's not an undercover cop this time, though there is one in this audience. It's a uniformed Nazi trooper marching down the center aisle of the conference hall. The blonde young man is followed by two other Nazis. He's carrying a big pink box labeled Queer Convention. A DOB member flips on her tape recorder. The Nazi, in a southern accent, calls for Rabbi Lippman to come forward. The room goes quiet. Echo's emergency plan goes into action. Leaders from all four homophile organizations get up and link arms, forming a chain to separate the Nazis from the clergymen. 
The Nazi holds up his box and announces that he has 24 quarts of Vaseline here for you queers to make use of. Audience members jump up to join the human chain and slowly push the Nazis back. Would you quit pushing me, you queers? He shouts. The homophiles begin to shout back, pay an admission or leave. You are trespassing. Frank Kameny says, you are being asked to leave. The Nazi backs up onto New York DOB President Shirley Willer's foot. Please remove your foot from my toe. I believe you're trying to kick me, aren't you, lesbian? I said remove your foot from my toe. Suddenly, the undercover officer stands up in the crowd and reveals his badge. The vice officer escorts the Nazis out of the convention, and they're all gone, cops and Nazis. Two birds. Isn't that the cop that arrested Walter Jenkins? Most of the people celebrating the officer and the Nazi leaving the convention have no idea that Officer Robert Graham was the same cop who cornered President Johnson's right-hand man while he was cruising in the bathroom at the YMCA last week. Check out my bonus episode all about it on my Patreon at patreon.com slash queer serial. Anyway... It was a gathering of men and women impatient to remedy the discrimination against the homosexual citizen in our society. Now, there seems to be a militancy about the new groups and new leaders. There's a different mood. In other news, Randy Wicker made his appearance known at New York Medical College on December 2nd, where a doctor gave a presentation titled Homosexuality, a Disease. Randy and three other activists waited at the entrances. Some of them passed out homophile flyers to everyone entering, while others held signs saying, We request 10 minutes rebuttal time. And they got it during the Q&A segment. Wicker took the mic in the audience to explain to everyone that these experts don't all agree, and their research is full of biases and prejudices. Wicker criticized their methods for studying homosexuality, particularly that doctors only ever look at unhappy homosexuals who came to them for therapy. Most of us are well-adjusted, he says. We're not sick. We're happy this way. Kay reports in the latter that Randy looked stunned to get more applause than the psychiatrist. He noted that those who call homosexuality a disease rarely warn their listeners about the unscrupulous therapists who charge exorbitant hourly fees and promise quick, easy cures to naive homosexuals or their distraught parents. Kay Tobin's piece about Randy's protest, titled Picketing the Pros and Cons, enrages Belitis members. Angry letters explain to her that only the lowly people picket. Kay and Barbara completely disagree. Barbara Giddings has quit her job to focus full-time on revamping the ladder and push a pro-picketing message. She and Kay are inspired by the Echo Convention and like-minded militant style of other homophile activists like Kameny. The latter reports that Randy Wicker is also carrying the same militant message in New York, despite his earlier claim to be leaving the homophile movement. Okay, we'll be right back following this message. As recently mentioned, this week on my Patreon bonus episode... He's a desperately ill man, Mr. President. A gay scandal in LBJ's White House. In 1964... President Johnson's right-hand man was taken down in the Lavender Scare. What did Mattachine have to say about it? 
a spin-off episode happening alongside the events of this week's queer serial, you'll want to hear the story that shocked America. Also this week on my Patreon, we're looking at gay coloring books from 1964. Guild Press published a few gay coloring books with fabulous drawings with captions like, These are my sisters. Color them mad. And this is my daddy. Color him gold. Another coloring book shows a gay trip around the world. And another one is called Autobiography of a Camp, which, no, I did not write. These are all from the year this episode of Queer Serial takes place, 1964. Subscribe to the bonus podcast with all this extra content to look through at patreon.com slash queer serial. It's $3 a month, including deeper dives into photos and archival research for queer serial, bonus episodes from all three seasons, plus the infamous crimes Boise sex panic series, and even more extra stuff like mugs, buttons, and Helen Branson's book, Gay Bar, published by the Mattachine in 1957. All this is to support production of the podcast and some upcoming projects. There's a link to Patreon in my episode notes. Not something you to get involved in now. If we don't express some support to him, I think that we will lose the entire love and devotion of all the people uh, who have been with us. Hello. I'm here to meet with the chief of police. Oh, Reverend Mickelvina. He said for your issue you should see the vice squad. No, I don't... Okay, fine. Head of vice, Officer Rudy Nieto, and the police chaplain greet the Reverend Ted Mickelvina. Rudy Nieto is about 6'2". He shakes the Reverend's hand and listens to him explain the upcoming private ball planned for ministers and homosexuals. The chaplain immediately asks, Do you believe that masturbation is a sin against God? Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Now, Reverend, you know if it were Halloween, we wouldn't mind the dressing up so much. Listen, officer, the dance will happen. We just want to let you know about it. All right, Reverend, fine. We'll give you the permit, but it must be a private event. Tickets in advance... And hire your own security. We don't need this thing getting out of control. Yes, sir. The Reverend leaves the station. Officer Rudy Nieto calls California Hall to try talking them into canceling the reservation. Guy Straits paper, now called Citizens News, announces... Tickets are for sale in many of the bars in San Francisco, plus many of the organizations... The donation for the affair is $5. This is a private affair, and to keep it this way, no tickets are to be available at the door or on the day of the ball. Since the fire department has put a 1,500-person limit on this dance hall, there will not be any more than 1,500 tickets sold. Those planning to attend must get their tickets early. Each organization gets a $1 kickback for each ticket sold. Great money for the homophile groups, and to get the Council for Religion and the Homosexual up and helping the city. New Year's Day, 1965. California Hall is a large venue on Polk Street in San Francisco's Tenderloin. 
It was built in 1912 and has ornate windows and a beautiful small black awning over the front doors. It stands five stories tall over the intersection of Polk and Turk. The Tavern Guild sets up the bar inside the hall while Sir members decorate for the dance. Herb Donaldson, Sir's lawyer, gets a call from San Francisco Mattachine President Hal Call. You two better get down to 693. Herb Donaldson and Evander Smith, the two attorneys hired by the Council for Religion and the Homosexual, they rush around the corner to the Mattachine Society offices on mission. Herb is a private attorney, taking gay clients sent to him by the Mattachine and LCE. Evander works a corporate job and secretly helps Herb with gay cases on the side. They're also both gay, and they both, coincidentally, have longtime lovers named Jim. The cops came here and gave us an ultimatum. The officer told Hal, Get the message out to those queer ministers that if they hold the event tonight, we're going to get rid of everyone. You think they'll come? The cops or the ministers? Coming in across the tenderloin, guests arrive at California Hall. Ministers enter with their wives on their arms. The wives are wearing beautiful gowns, as are the queens, some of them getting out of limousines. Reverend Mickelvena chose the ticket takers at the door very carefully. They're civil rights lawyers with rouge on. Inside, Pat Lyon, DOB founder Phyllis Lyon's sister, she sells drink tickets in a little booth. On the dance floor, ministers and queers mingle. Many women are in suits, many men in dresses. Clergy are in uniform, which is its own sort of drag. Men and women of all sexualities and races dance with each other. Some of the guests here have never seen such comfortable interracial dancing. Hey! Can I see your ID, sir? What's going on out there? Phil, what's happening out there? Open the door. Well, let's have a look. Phyllis and a minister peek their heads out of the California Hall doors. Plague lights. There's a paddy wagon across the street and a police car at the end of the block. And a photographer. Two photographers. Probably just press, right? Herb Donaldson and Evander Smith pull up outside. The entire hall's entrance is lit up as Mardi Gras costumed ministers and queers get their tickets ready for the door. It's lit up by police floodlights. A third cameraman films them entering. Some of the guests that pull up in their cars see the photographers in the paddy wagon, and they quickly pull away. Herb and Evander get out of their car. Over here. Over here, darling. Fearless queens pose for the police photographers. Over here. Over here. Give me two of these, honey. Nancy May from Sir pulls up. More police cars pull in behind her. Just ignore the police. Come on, let's just get inside. The intersection is barricaded by police cars and some motorcycles. Officers get out and stand around, just to intimidate. Reverend Chuck Lewis takes a look outside at the clusters of cops, and he leaves California Hall. He runs to North Beach, home, to grab his camera, and he runs right back. It only takes eight slides, and it requires a flashbulb for every photo taken, but the Reverend runs back to the dance and takes quick shots of the police outside and of the photographers taking photos of arriving guests. Back inside... I heard they're in riot gear out there. Take these. Hide them. Joe takes the film from Reverend Lewis and stuffs it down her bra. We need to make a health inspection. It's required by the city. Herb and Evander, the attorneys, are standing in the doorway. Fine. Go ahead. The two officers enter California Hall and circle the dance floor. 
Nancy May goes to her position at the donation receipt table and offers to take over for Dell and Phil for a while. Ten minutes later... Fire inspection. It's code. Okay, since you're not in uniform. And soon after... We're here for the inspection. A third inspection? It's only been 15 minutes. These cops are in uniform. Herb reluctantly lets them through, too. Two more cops hit the dance floor, pacing, checking closets, walking through the bar. Bill! Here. Nancy's husband, Bill May, also slips some photos over, two full rolls of film into his wife's hands. I know nothing's gonna happen to you, so do something with this. Guy Straight gets up on stage. The lights go up, the music stops. There's nothing to be worried about. Don't be alarmed. The police have the building surrounded. All the gay people go back to dancing. The ministers watch the police scope the room. Herb and Evander, at the door, stop two more ticketless men from entering the hall. We're here to do the inspection. Officer, I thought we had a deal. I don't understand what the police have a problem with. God damn it, no. If you're gonna come in, come in with a search warrant. More officers push inside. The entryway fills. Herb and the inspecting officer stare each other down. The cops didn't think the council would stand them off. The council didn't think the cops would really raid. And finally, the cops grab Herb and Evander by the elbows. Am I under arrest? They pull the attorneys outside. Am I under arrest? Their feet dangling, Herb and Evander are taken to the paddy wagon, frisked, and put inside. Someone call the mayor. Reverend Cecil Williams follows them out to the wagon. He says the ministers are prepared to be arrested if you wish. But Herb Donaldson says, no, you'll be better as witnesses than co-defendants. Back inside, Hal Call, Don Lucas, Larry Littlejohn, Dell, Phil, and all the homophiles watch the cops still circling the ballroom. Reverend Clay Caldwell is on the telephone. Yes, I'm trying to report an emergency. Help us! If police officers are there, why don't you tell them? They're the problem. (sighs) Head of Vice, Rudy Nieto, enters California Hall. Nancy May is cleaning up cups, alone in the lobby. She carries an armful of half-full cups toward a trash can when the tall police officer steps in her way. Nancy moves to go around him. Officer Nieto looks down at her. We're coming in to inspect the premises. Under advice of attorney, you have to have a warrant. This is a private party. I don't need a warrant. I have this. Nieto flashes his badge. Well, that's not going to get you in. (laughs) She drops the cups in the trash. Nieto grabs Nancy and pulls her toward the door. Look, lady, we're coming in. I've just about had it with you people. You don't belong here. Now get out! Nieto turns toward the door. Officers? She turns back to see him with three uniformed policemen. Put that woman under arrest. Can I get my coat? No, take her Take her out there. Cecil Williams comes in and says, let the girl get her coat. It's cold out there. And he escorts her to the coat room. Tell Bill that I'm being arrested. Cecil books it to the dance floor and he grabs Bill. The wrong Bill, Bill Plath, not Nancy May's husband, but still... She gives Bill Plath the rolls of film from her pocket and returns to the lobby to be arrested. Another attorney, Elliot Leeton, runs into the lobby behind her and the officers arresting her. Nancy! Nancy May! You can't take that woman! You can't take that woman! You're under arrest. You can go with her. What's going on? We'll uphold God's laws if you won't. Nieto and his officers circle the ballroom. 
plainclothes cops approach gay dancing guests and ask them to come with them. Some people think these pigs are also guests at the party and follow them outside. Once lured out, the homosexuals are put under arrest. Two gay men, Conrad Osterreich and John Borset, are put into the paddy wagon. Nancy May and Elliot Leeton are led to a car and taken away. The cops inside continue looking to pick off guests until the dance floor is in a panic. People suddenly realize what's going on and they run for the doors. Outside, cops swarm the block. A minister at the front entrance opens his coat wide for six people to duck behind him as he blocks the officers and guides the guests to the street so they can hop in a limo. The minister returns to the front door and he does it again. I want you to know you're interfering with an officer in the line of duty. If you ever do that again, you'll be arrested. The cops take the place. At Northern Station, Herb and Evander have already called a judge they know in order to be released on their own recognizance. Nancy and Elliot have just arrived and are being charged with obstructing the police. Where are you currently employed? Nancy has her Sir Pocket Lawyer memorized. Her organization printed it. This is not going to get back to my employer? Oh no, good heavens. Bill Plath is making arrangements for Nancy and Elliot's bail, but the cops take their fingerprints and strip-search Elliot anyway. Conrad and John, the two arrested gay men, are booked and detained for lewd and lascivious conduct. Herb and Evander quickly return to California Hall. The place is wrecked. Cops roam the hall like they rented the space for their own dance. School teachers who attended the ball are still inside, hiding, trying to figure out what to do. If they go outside, they'll be arrested. One of them runs up to Herb and Evander. Can you sneak us out through the back door? We could lose our teaching licenses if our photos are in the paper. They won't get that photo. He sneaks them out easily. They don't get that photo, and the teachers don't get caught. There's nothing else the lawyers can do. The dance is over. Herb and Evander return to their respective gyms at home. Reverend Chuck Lewis gets back to his car, and he's so angry he can't even drive. He gets out of the car and walks down the block toward home, pulling his leftover flashbulbs from his pocket, smashing them on the wall one by one. The reverend looks up and sees two police officers inside a hotel lobby across the street, just talking to a desk clerk. Reverend Lewis watches them, white-knuckled. Nancy May is released from jail. She immediately goes for California Hall, too. Herb lies down in bed with Jim. This is the end of his legal career. Tomorrow his name will be printed in the paper. He's done. He's quietly lying in bed thinking. Jim suddenly says, I'm so proud of you. Nancy May walks on to the dark California Hall dance floor. The police are gone. The guests are gone. The staff is cleaning up. Nancy goes home. Next week, Episode 3, The Raid on California Hall, Part 2.
Here's a bonus fact. That police station in this episode, Northern Station, is also where a cop named Dan White worked a decade later. From there, he was elected supervisor and then assassinated Harvey Milk. A more fun fact, Glide Memorial Church, which was founded in 1929 and featured in this episode, is still there in San Francisco now, just two blocks from where Compton's Cafeteria used to be. They're still known as one of the most progressive churches in the country with programs to feed and house people in their community. There's a link to their website in the episode notes. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying Queer Serial, please give me a quick little five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That will help boost the show to some new listeners who are looking for queer history or maybe radio dramas. And um, feel free to write a little review if you like. There's a link to all of that in the episode notes. Speaking of links in my episode notes, you can follow me on Instagram at Queer Serial to see the real events and people from every episode. Thank you to some major donors this season. Historian Will Roscoe, Connor Good, Jesse Nasta, Brian Rowe, Andrew Casey. Thank you all for your kind donations to support this podcast production. If you want to support the show, you can join my Patreon at patreon.com slash queer serial. There are tons of bonus episodes, lots of deep dives into the research for the history of every episode. Or you can donate at QueerSerial.com slash donate. Also, thanks to the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Many of the details from the California Hall raid come from the fantastic documentary Lewd and Lascivious by Jalen Ricks. There's a link in the episode notes to watch the whole thing right now if you want spoilers for next week's episode. Check out QueerSerial.com for more resources. Teachers of any kind, DM me on any social media platform or email me at QueerSerial at gmail.com if you'd like transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors. Hal Call was performed by, as always, Dominic Caruso, Jack Nichols by Nick Large, Lige Clark by Dan Unser, MSW's Ray by Lucian Grateri, and Gail by Emily Baytech, Frank Kameny by Albert Williams. That's so funny about the purple... That's how I started in journalism. I, when I wrote that detail, I knew you would appreciate it. I thought that's so funny. <laughs> and those the, carbon copies, those purple carbon the, copies. They, they would have the purple handprints everywhere. And the smell, oh my God. I bet it was horrible. Well, it was sort of nice. It was pretty high. It was pretty intense. Oh, do you get a high off of it? A little bit, yeah. That's lovely. Ooh. Especially if you're doing it in a basement, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the point. <laughs> yeah. Because it was also you had a hand operated. I it took me a long time to find the sound of a mimeo machine I online. <laughs> it, it took a lot of digging. Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle, Daughters Riding into DOB by Julia Playle and Amanda Victorian, Kay Lehusen by Katie Spleet, Del Martin by Salvio Gatto, Phyllis Lyon by Jane Serenska, Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller, Shirley Willer by Heidi Dove, Echo Audience Member by Founding Radical Fairy, Joey Kane. Isn't that the cop that arrested Walter Jenkins? Northern Station Secretary by Jen Freitag, Police Chaplain by Mike Kanish, Officer Rudy Nieto by John Roth, Guy Straight by Tim O'Reilly, Cops by Mike Lysak, Mike Kanish, and my dad, Matt Camp, and my grandpa, Steve Camp. The Two Lawyers, Herb Donaldson by Keith Green and Evander Smith by Matthew Ellenwood. Keith and Matthew are a lovely pair of partners who live down the street from me, and Keith is a college gay history teacher. I love them. I'm so glad they're playing the lawyers. Here's historian Will Roscoe when he saw Herb Donaldson's name in the podcast script. Let me pull up the episode. Oh, Evander Smith. Herb Donaldson. Yeah, they're all He was a judge. Yeah. And, um... Brad worked at this bookstore, um, Richard Hillkirk Books, 
and uh, you know he was diagnosed. He was living with AIDS. Um, it was a small bookstore, a small business, um, and healthcare was a big issue. And uh, the healthcare that he was able to get was just hugely expensive. So someone who was anonymous, who was connected to the bookstore, started kicking in a few hundred or a couple hundred dollars every month for Brad's health care. When he died, Richard told me it was Herb Donaldson. That's incredible. That's an Judge incredible. Donaldson. Yeah, wow. The Woman Dancing at the California Hall Ball was performed by Maggie Smith. Joe at the Ball by my lovely granny, Faye Camp. Minister's Wife and 911 Dispatcher by the first person I ever came out to, Lucy Jones. Queens at the Ball by Jack Murphy, Samuel Miles, and Dan Unser. Reverend Chuck Lewis by Ryan Teal, designer of the podcast art. Nancy May by the fantastic Courtney Tesh. Bill May and Jim by Matthew Ryle. Reverend Clay Caldwell by Jacob Wallace, Elliot Leeton by Evan Kepnick, and School Teacher by Tina Munoz Pandaya. Wow, what a cast. Podcast art is by Ryan Teal. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week for part two of the California Hall Raid.